Welcome to Switchboard, Varsity's flagship podcast. I'm Belle George, and I'm here today with historians Dr. Lucy Delap and Dr. Ben Griffin for this week's episode on The Rising Tide, an exhibition exploring the history of women at Cambridge University. The exhibition, curated by Ben and Lucy, marks 150 years of women being able to study here in Cambridge. Yet despite Cambridge being the first university in Britain to offer residential higher education for women, it passionately resisted granting women full degrees until 1948, making it the last university in Britain to do so. Just six years after Cambridge University finally agreed to grant its female students full degrees, Rosemary Murray wrote a letter to Robin Hammond detailing her excitement about her agreement to be New Hall's other founding fellow. New Hall, now called Murray Edwards, became the third Cambridge college specifically for female students. Rosemary's 1954 letter began, Dear Robin, hooray, hurrah, hurrah, how does one spell the word? Anyway, you know what I mean. I'm so thrilled that you'll be coming. Murray's letter is one of the numerous artefacts currently on display in The Rising Tide. I've chosen to begin today's episode of Switchball with Murray's letter because I felt that her excitement matched my own when Lucy emailed me back to say that her and Ben would be happy to join me on the show. So, Lucy and Ben, welcome, and thank you for joining me today on Switchboard. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Uh, it's great to have you both here. Um, I thought we should you know, start at the beginning, which is sort of where to say where did this idea for The Rising Tide exhibit come from? Well, Ben and I had been lucky enough to work with the University Library on an amazing collection of suffrage posters that they uh, discovered in the tower um, uh, just in the lead up to the centenary of uh, women uh, receiving the, the franchise in, in 1918. So in, it, it was about 2017, I think, Ben, wasn't it, where we yeah. went and looked at those posters and we thought, wow, these posters, are, some of them have never been seen before. They're, they're not familiar to us as suffrage historians. All from and around 1910. And even more excitingly, some of them refer to the meetings in Cambridge, so they were local posters that had um, survived somehow and um, told us really exciting new things about how the suffrage struggle was conducted in Cambridge itself. So we had a lot of fun with those posters and we got quite close to the University Library um, exhibitions team and then they said to us, shall we try and do something um, uh, something bigger, an exhibition that covers this, this enormous story of women's involvement in the life of the University of Cambridge. Because we have the 150th anniversary this year, it's 150 years since Girton was founded, and that seemed an appropriate juncture to try and take stock of how the university has treated women over the ages. Yeah, so we've got Girton's 150 years this year, and then I understand that Newnham's is next year, isn't it? 2021, all exactly, right? Yeah, so we've got the two female colleges, or two oldest female colleges, I should say, celebrating their 150th anniversary. Um, before the podcast started, Lucy and Ben and I realised that between the three of us, we've got three out of four Cambridge female colleges covered. So Lucy's a fellow at Murray Edwards, Ben at Girton, and I'm an undergraduate here at Newnham. Um, and then the fourth is obviously uh, Lucy Cavendish, although not for much longer. Um, so the Rising Tide expert started with that idea from the University Library about the posters. We also were really excited when we started looking at the history to realise there were a whole load of other anniversaries that we could sort of roll up into the exhibition. So nationally, it was um, 100 years in 2019 since the, um, the uh, Sex Discrimination Removal Act had passed, which gave universities the formal powers to be able to admit women where they hadn't admitted them. Um, and it was also 25 years since the Rising Tide Report, which the exhibition pays homage to in its title, which was produced by Nancy Lane Perham, who's a, a, a Girton Fellow, um, a, a zoologist, and who um, initiated 
this really important conversation about women in science with her report, which was a national um, cabinet office report. And then that kicked off all the really familiar initiatives now that we still see in Cambridge, like Wissetti and what was then called the Athena Project and has now become Athena Swan, this national um, uh, gender equity um, uh, scheme that that's, that every university is is, is joining. Oh, interesting. And all the departments are doing things independently because it's 100 years since women could enter the legal profession because mm-hmm. of the Sex Disqualification Removal Act. Um, so the law faculty are doing a lot. Pathology are doing their own scheme of putting up portraits of women um, in their department. So there was a lot of excitement within the university that we wanted to tap into. Fantastic. And as historians, what do you sort of... Do, are these sort of anniversaries very important often? Do they, I guess often they must spark, you know, things like celebrations of history. Is that a common trend, I ask, as a non-history student? <laughs> well, certainly it gives... It's a way of getting people's attention to focus on wider historical processes. And I think Lucy and I were quite keen that we wanted the exhibition to celebrate women's creativity in negotiating what was not always a friendly landscape Mm. over the last 150 years. Uh, We didn't want it to be uncritically celebratory. Um, We wanted it to be a critical look back, celebrating the things that ought to be celebrated, but also using this moment as a way of drawing attention to some of the wider structural dynamics and processes as they've unfolded over 150 years. Yeah, and I guess that's to say that, you know, the the fight isn't over, is it? Um, That's right. It wasn't job done in in 1869, nor was it job done in 1948 when women were finally given the right to to study on the same terms as men. There was still um, all sorts of um, restrictions, lack of resources, uh, lack of places available in Cambridge University, uh, and you know issues that carry on today when we look at the gender pay gap, when we look at the representation of women at the higher levels of the academic profession, when we look at women's academic performance in some subjects, you know there's there's all sorts of issues around the ways in which Cambridge is still sometimes a hostile environment. Mm. And and speaking of hostile environments, I think one part of the exhibit that I found really sort of interesting and uh, inspiring in terms of thinking of activism was um, just the violence, like the sheer violence of the response of men to, uh, you know, women trying to get degrees. I know, Ben, if you want to speak a little bit about um, the votes in 1987 or 1921, have I got the dates right? Yeah. (laughs) The first vote was 1897. 1897, that's what I meant. And when that vote was taken, the streets of Cambridge were flooded with returning former students because people with MAs could vote. Yes, they had the, I remember you have the one document as the train times, isn't it? They ran extra trains from King's Cross, which obviously must have been quite a big undertaking back then. That's right. So the streets were heaving and um, at a prearranged signal, which was a key student leaning out the window and crowing like a cockerel, the students began pelting the crowds below with eggs and confetti. Um, And then when the result of the vote was announced about eight o'clock in the evening and it was announced that women's um the motion to give women degrees had been defeated uh all hell broke loose and students began lobbing fireworks over the railings of the people who'd been voting in senate house and the whole thing turned into a riot fortunately a passing librarian um showed extraordinary presence of mind and scooped up some of the detritus so we've actually got fragments of the eggshells and the confetti and the fireworks in the exhibition and then the students marched on Newnham um, in what must have been an incredibly threatening moment. You had the Newnham College staff standing in front of the gates, pleading with the mob to leave them alone. 
1897, the mob did actually turn back and they headed over to Market Square and rioted there. And they pulled the doors and shutters off the shops around Market Square to build a bonfire in the middle of the market, which burnt until three o'clock in the morning. When the fire brigade showed up to put it out, the students tried to stop them and the fire brigade turned their hoses on the students. (laughs) But unfortunately, that set the pattern. And when there was another vote in 1921... There was another riot, and this time the students didn't leave Newnham alone, and they wrecked the beautiful bronze gates, which are the college's memorial to its first principal, Andrew McClough. And one of the highlights of the exhibition, actually, is we've got um, a letter from representatives of each of the men's colleges, not apologising for the violence, but regretting the violence. Mm. Uh, And clearly, some of the undergraduates thought it was all just a bit of a lark but actually this was profoundly violent and must have been really frightening and really dispiriting for those women who'd been campaigning for votes to see this uh, the extent of the hostility and the contempt with which they were treated Mm -hmm. and remember this is just one year after oxford had admitted women on the same terms as men so it was felt like you know the momentum was going in the direction of women's inclusion Mm -hmm. and cambridge used oxford to say well if people want to study they can go there we're going to maintain this you know, very special all-male environment with the kind of special qualities that come with that. Um, and it's extraordinary to think that they then held out for a, you know, another... 28 20, years. Absolutely, <laughs> 20, 27 years, in fact, it was. Yeah. Um, and, until really World War II had changed attitudes where Cambridge looked so out of line with the rest of the sector that that vote in, in, in 1947 was a very quiet one. Hardly any voices. Only one person stood up in Senate House to argue against the admission of women. So we go from sort of one extreme to another then, from this extreme of violence and chaos and, like Ben was saying, very intimidating towards the woman to almost silence. Almost silence. But let's not forget that, yes, they were admitting women to, uh, to degrees, but they still didn't want women to be here in very large numbers. So they still had quotas saying <coughs> that women couldn't exceed... Um, a certain level of the student population, it was adjusted in the end to one in ten. One in ten. Those quotas ran until 1961. Funnily enough, they weren't even used because there were simply not enough college places for women to ever, you know, to to, to ever um, fulfil the quota. Um, And they weren't taken off the university statute books until uh, 1987. 1987, wow. Yeah, so the the traces of that struggle go deeply into you know recent history yeah and a lot of the colleges only really started to allowing women to up their academic scores didn't they i read that somewhere that they wanted uh, the better grades which the women were bringing so that encouraged them to allow that's right so the process of um making more spaces for women if you like continued with uh new hall in the 1950s and uh, lucy cavendish in the 1960s to meet the need uh, that there was for places from really well-qualified women who were you know, failing to get the education they, they needed. And it was really only after those um, colleges had been established that you start to get the debate in the all-male colleges about, well, should we uh, admit women? And they're doing that, yeah, because um, uh, the women's colleges are getting much better grades. They're right at the top of the, 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 the pile. Um, and um, these colleges are often regretful that the sort of atmosphere that they've got of you know brotherliness and sort of uh, enjoyable single-sex masculine company is going to be as they see it threatened by women's presence but they recognize that for the um the 18 year olds who are coming up to, to university they no longer really want that 
the younger generation was starting to uh, to want a different kind of environment. They they regarded an all male environment as unnatural. Mm. That's that's the word that you often get in in the archival record, and that really contrasts to 1921 when uh, you know a, a poll of um, student opinion showed that actually most undergraduates, most male undergraduates as they were then, were opposed to um, to women's admission. I guess that shows over the course of what fifty years from twenties to seventies, just how perspectives were changing. Um, and you just mentioned the sort of in the archival record. So do you want to speak a little about the process of going about finding these artifacts? Um, I noticed when I was at the exhibit that a lot came from Newnham and Girton, the colleges themselves. Um, was it mostly driven by you reaching out to people? Did people reach out to you? It was a really humbling process, actually, of going around and talking to people who often themselves had been part of this history. So often they were part of the various different kinds of struggles and campaigns um, around women at Cambridge. Um, so we were talking to people about their own experiences. We were making films and, 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 and interviews with uh, individuals. Um, but we were also going to talk to the different um, uh, colleges and saying, you know, what, what do you think would best tell this story? And the archivists were sometimes bringing out these wonderful things like the, uh, the bedmaker's notes in, in Trinity College, which um, incredibly have survived, which show a bedmaker sort of berating the very famous economist that she was cleaning the rooms of for not uh, letting her in in the mornings after he had got up. <laughs> and the tennis dress came that way as well. That's right, so the tennis dress from... Uh, That's from Newnham, isn't it? From Newnham. It's, yeah. it's a wonderful mid-1880s wool tennis dress. It covers um, uh, from ankle to sleeve and a high neck, so it covers the whole of the player's body. It must have been really awkward. Mm, Woolen, you say. It's very thick, it's very heavy. It's got sort of multiple skirts down at the bottom. Wow. Uh, and we've got this lovely photo that goes with it of the um, 1885 Newnham uh, Lawn Tennis uh, Club they're all looking very serious in these incredible <laughs> dresses and you know there is it's a powerful picture they're powerful young women yeah so yeah speaking of this powerful image was there um i guess what what's one woman that you came across whose story was particularly sort of powerful to you does anyone spring to mind in particular oh this, that's a hard question because there's just so many incredible stories in the exhibition but i think i would pick um the amazing christabel proctor Mm-hmm. who was head gardener um, at Girton in 1930s and, and 40s. So she was there during World War II and oversaw the incredible um, um, shift of production away from the sort of glorious, beautiful college gardens and the flowers towards fruit and vegetables and, um, you know, the ploughing up of all sorts of <coughs> lawns, the uprooting of all sorts of flowers to plant tomatoes and marrows and so on all around all the kind of beautiful college features so she was a, a very dynamic woman she's also interesting because she um she was entirely deaf and she operated by uh, lip reading and wow. people who worked with her didn't even know that she was deaf i mean some did obviously but lots um had no idea because she was such a skilled lip reader so she's an extraordinary individual she had um a very close relationship with another woman all her life and so in that sense she reminds us of the sort of queer the the queer past that is also embedded in um the university's history and um she comes over as a real character interestingly though we have almost no photos of her so she's represented in the exhibition with some minutes from the garden committee and that was a real kind of conundrum for us how to bring out the people behind the documents that are often just text-based mm. how do you tell those stories through lots and lots and lots of text-based documents which is why the the tennis dress and the the wonderful gown from trinity college dublin and you know the other artifacts were, were so important when we could find them and even the posters 
because in 1897, when the university voted on giving women degrees, the town was completely plastered with posters. It was a major outpouring of student opinion. It, the university hadn't really thought about consulting student opinion meaningfully before, and the students insisted that they would be heard on this. Mm. And the tide of opinion was definitely against giving women degrees. But even the posters are very text-based because you don't really get visual images on posters until the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. And we've got these amazing surviving posters from 1897, but they're very, very wordy. I mean, they're quoting Shakespeare to oppose <laughs> giving women degrees. So even what you would hope would be the most visual objects are actually still very text-based. Very text-based. That's really interesting. And that woman you speak of at Gerson, I think that's just such a fantastic tale. Like, And that's someone that perhaps in traditional histories would maybe be obscured. Yes, I mean, she, she, was, she was a well-known gardener of her day, so she, she, she has her place, if you like, in, in, um, in, in, in the archive. But there's certainly lots of other figures who really haven't left um, any kind of public records, and so we were really keen to try to get at the women who worked as gardeners, as porters, as laundresses, as bedmakers. In fact, there's a wonderful laundress and this is the, one of the opening items that you see when you come into the, um, the exhibition, who, um, whose portrait has hung in Magdalen College, Porter's Lodge, uh, for nobody knows how long. You know, the porters just say it's always been there. She's an, she's an 18th century college laundress. And she really reminds us of the fact that um, women were always in these colleges, even before they admitted women as students. They were doing the work, they were scrubbing the floors, they were washing the sheets. And just occasionally, their faces get commemorated and their their names get recorded. Fantastic. Um, Ben, did you have a woman in mind when I asked Lucy, someone Um, who you came across? I think I would pick Catherine Wilson, who was the first woman to get a Cambridge PhD. Um, Cambridge only began offering PhDs in 1919. um, And there were four women who took the PhD in 1924, and hers was the first to be approved. So she was the daughter of a farmer from Aberdeenshire, um, wow. who produced a thesis um, on m- music and English poetry. And it's full of these lovely little hand-drawn scores, actually, but uh, that's an important moment, because, of course, until the creation of the women's colleges, there were no academic jobs for women no. in the UK. So until Girton was created, there was no way where a woman could have an academic job. And uh, by the First World War, there were about 30 academic jobs for women in the university, about 120 nationally, because of course other universities were starting to hire women. Um, So there's a story here about the professionalisation of academia and women carving out these new careers for themselves, although it has to be said that a lot of men at Cambridge managed to carve out academic careers without a PhD, Mm. Um, moved straight from um, Tripos into a research fellowship um, or something like that. So in a sense, women... women had to jump through more hoops. Yeah, women had to jump through more hoops to forge an academic career absolutely yeah. and we've, we've got this amazing uh, game from Girton College uh, drawn hand drawn by Muriel Bradbrook uh, and it's uh, uh, it's one of the highlights I think of the exhibition and it shows the kind of snakes and ladders approach to, to, to women's careers um, it's set in the exhibition alongside the photo of Dorothy Garrard who was the first woman to be appointed as a professor Disney professor I live in um, the Dorothy Garrard building in yeah. Newton actually well yeah. great that her name lives on we've got a lovely photo of her and the photo was taken in 1952, the game was produced in 1951, and it really speaks to how difficult it was in, in, that, in those decades, 1940s, 1950s, to get by as a woman. And most tellingly, just two squares after graduation from your BA is Mary's supervisor. Oh, two <laughs> steps forward, one step back. <laughs> well, there's one square that says, appointed to 15 more committees, go back three spaces, <laughs> which uh, I'm feeling. And Muriel Bradbrook, 
um, was the first woman to be professor in the English department. Um, so she was appointed, she'd been an academic in one of the colleges, then got a university post in eight, uh, 1948 and produced this board game three years later and a few years after that became a professor in the English faculty and then became mistress of Girton eventually. So she, she knew what she was writing about, but it's a fascinating glimpse of someone imagining what an academic career might look like. Yeah. And, and it's also worth remembering that uh, for women of colour, the, the um, possibility of working for the university came even later. Mm-hmm. So when we think about the kind of hostile environment that, that women might have faced here, I think it was um, even more complex, difficult to navigate and sometimes very hostile for women of colour. And we were really pleased to discover the woman that we think was the first um, university lecturer to be appointed who was a woman of colour, which is Shyla Fennell, who's still with us at Jesus College in land economy. She was appointed to a temporary lectureship in 1994 and a permanent lectureship in 1996. Mm-hmm. So some of this history is really very, very recent, mm-hmm. as we saw in particular uh, uh, in relation to women's rowing. I think that was probably the, the latest of the campaigns, if you like, uh, which is a campaign of the early 20th century, uh, sorry, the early 21st century, to get um, the same level of resources as, as men's rowing had and to get access to the same um, uh, course to, 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 to row the, the boat race, the tideway on the Thames. That's the latest of the campaigns to be resolved. I mean, yes. There are others that are ongoing. <laughs> of course, yeah. I, um, I, I noticed in the exhibit that the, on the section about sports and extracurriculars there was mention of uh, the rowing club and you have the fantastic um, rowing outfit from, from years past. Um, but I noticed that in that it said that it wasn't until... Uh, the Second World War, when there was space on the River Cam, when uh, the, obviously the men were away fighting, so they weren't out rowing, that women's rowing really took off. And I wondered, sort of, what else? Uh, you mentioned that women's PhDs were allowed in 1919. Is that just a coincidence that ties in with the end of World War? I'm wondering if we could speak a little about sort of the significance of these wars and men being away, or what that sort of meant for for women at the university. Well, it, it's really striking that with so many men serving. Um, in the military, Cambridge academic women moved to other universities to take over as heads of department while the men were away, and then when the war was over, they came back. So there's an extraordinary movement there. I th- I th- the wars clearly are very significant, but what struck me that I was surprised by was how many of the student societies began admitting women after the full enfranchisement of women in 1928. I mean, actually giving women the vote seemed to prompt a lot of the student societies to rethink their position on women's exclusion. Mm. And so you got um, the University Music Club, which was a chamber music society, for instance, uh, deciding finally to grant women full membership in 1936 after a debate that seems to have been sparked by that. Mm. I think it's worth also remembering that um, the experience of World War impacted not only on what uh, academic women and students could do at Cambridge, but also on the women working for the university. And one of the exciting interviews that um, we got to do was with Mrs. Granwyn Sykes, who is 101 and who was a uh, chef at Newnham during World War II. What's interesting about her story is not only the, the kind of the difficulties she encountered in just you know, getting hold of food and, and, and um, cooking during World War II, but it's also the way in which the war was a time of quite surprising fluidity for her. So she was uh, a chef at Newnham. She had a boyfriend who was in one of the colleges who had, who had actually uh, been inv- evacuated at Dunkirk and, and was wounded and was then studying. Um, so she's 101 now. How old would she have been 
she mm. would have been quite a young, young. woman. Okay, it was the start of her her work career. Life. Okay, yeah. so she had a boyfriend at one of the other colleges. She used to smuggle food out of Newnham <laughs> to him because he was uh, less well fed right. than the uh, the students at Newnham, in her view. Um, and interestingly, she also remembers at Newnham how friendly it was and how the um, the support staff, the people who were working in the kitchens and the gardens and so on, felt like they were really included in all the decisions that the college faced. So they were consulted over policy matters. They were um, eating together with all the fellows and the students. They were socialising together. So in the evenings, she would, she would sit in the, the senior common room with the fellowship. Now, we don't see that level of um, integration of the kind of different parts of, of college lives in, in today's colleges. And she moved from being a chef to being assistant bursar. So she moved from a, a, you know, a, a job where she was working with her hands to a job where she was in charge of quite important decision-making in, in, in college. Um, and that, again, is another kind of fluidity. And eventually she married her boyfriend, who was at one of the colleges, and, 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 and went off and, and, and lived her life. But that was a real treat to, to get that glimpse of wartime Cambridge. Yeah, that's really interesting. You speak of that fluidity, and I think really important to think about now in the context of ongoing campaigns like the Living Wage Campaign. There are still so many people working at the, at the university who's, who aren't being properly recognised in, in mm. for what they're doing. Absolutely. And actually one of the campaigns where we do see all those... Um, different kind of slices of life that you see within the university, the people who are working for it, the people who are studying, the people who are researching, uh, they all come together in the 1970s on the very important issue of childcare. They're all parents or they, you know, they have an investment in the idea that, that childcare should be available. And, you know, ch- adequate childcare was a make or break issue for women who were trying to work um, uh, or study. We also have student parents. And there's this extraordinary occupation of the Senate House in 1975, which we tell the story of in the exhibition, where um, around 1,600 individuals occupied Senate House. I do not know how they all fitted in there, but they managed to squeeze in 1,600 individuals, including children, um, into uh, into Senate House. And that then um, uh, prompted a response from the Vice-Chancellor only, you know, a, a couple of days later, and we've got his response in the um, exhibition, it won't surprise you to know that his response was, we clearly can't afford uh, to, to provide childcare. <laughs> and, you know, it, it took another 20 years before the university started taking sponsoring childcare seriously. It was the colleges, actually, who, who stepped into that breach and were the first to, to found colleges in the 1970s. Uh, so speaking of children, I did notice in the exhibit that you have a, a box of children's toys making it an accessible space for both parents and children, which that, I thought was really right. nice. That's right, and the University Library hasn't always been seen as the kind of place where you could bring children, no. but we've seen over half term that there have been a lot of families coming and lots of kids reading those books, and the books, I must say, that we've got are all about you know women's empowerment, about a kind of a, a, a world where gender is not a, a confining element. And we've had a lot of feedback from children. You can leave written feedback about the exhibition as you leave it. And you can leave of, on a typewriter, can't you? Yes, um, and we've had a lot of children writing things saying that they enjoyed it, which yeah. is really pleasing that they've There's been able to come up. Brilliant creativity using the typewriter, I must say. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Um, I just wanted to sort of finish by asking the two of you, obviously you're both academics here and you've both been studying here at the university as well, haven't you? So sort of how... How it has changed, in your perspective, just during your time here, your personal history for for women? Well, I think I would say, from my own personal perspective, one of the things that I remember about being an undergraduate here was having absolutely no expectation of academic success. Now, maybe that was just me, but nobody ever said to me, oh, Lucy, you might do well. 
And when I went down to get my degree results, which were then posted outside Senate House, right? There was no email to, to, to give you your results in private. Uh, I remember looking for my name and not finding it. And that was because it hadn't occurred to me to look in the first class. I was looking in the, you know, the, the 2-1, then I looked in the 2-2, then I looked in the third. Somebody had to point my name out to me, and I did get a first. I'm really proud of that. But I regret the fact that no supervisor, no lecturer ever said to me, Lucy, have you thought about, you know, maybe going on to study, doing a postgraduate degree and... I say to my students now very deliberately, you can do this, you know, you, you, you could get a first. As soon as I see a glimpse of a, a great essay, I say, look, build on this and you're going to do really well here. So I think there is a different kind of environment around women's ambition and women's sense that they can succeed. That's, as an undergraduate, that's, that's very inspiring to hear. <laughs> um, anything to add? Well, I think it's been really important to us as we've been curating the exhibition to insist that you know the history of women at Cambridge isn't simply a supplement to the history of university, it is the history of the university. And one thing I hope people will take from the exhibition is an understanding of just how much the university has changed. I think there's a, because so many people are here for a relatively short period of their life, they get a snapshot of the university and they don't necessarily understand just how rapidly the university is changing. I think there's a tendency to think of it as an 800-year-old university, which hasn't changed a lot. Um, but when you think about the fact that, you know, at the start of our exhibition, students could only study a handful of subjects. Girton College is six years older than the history tripos and the law tripos. The modern languages degree didn't come in until 1883. Geography not until uh, 1919, wasn't it? Um, now the role of the colleges has changed. You didn't get departments or faculties until the 1920s. You didn't get university lecturers until the 1880s. Um, a lot of the things that we think have been there forever are actually relatively recent. And I think it ought to be a hopeful thing to see that things can change in the university because the university is changing all the time. We might not see it if we're only here for a few years at a time. And so in my lifetime, there have been significant changes, but over a wider perspective, there have been quite enormous changes and the university is continuing to evolve. And that creates new opportunities. Sometimes those um, evolutions shut down and close down opportunities and we need to be mindful of that. Um, but I think that, that long-term story, in a sense, is more powerful to me than just thinking about what I personally have experienced. I think that's a really nice note of hope to end on. Thank you both so much for coming and speaking to me, and I hope that you know other young female undergraduates get a chance to visit your exhibit. I mean, not just young female undergraduates, everyone, but I would particularly recommend. It's free to enter. We're open until the 21st of March. Fantastic. Thank you both so much. And as Ben said, the Rising Tide exhibit will be on display until March 2020 in the University Library. Entry is free and open to all, and I highly recommend that you pay it a visit. This episode can be downloaded from whatever platform you get your podcast from. Make sure to subscribe so you can get updates on our future episodes. And this has been Bell George on Switchboard. Thank you for listening, and tune in for next time when our next episode will be on the founders of Scoop, a student-run zero-waste shop here in Cambridge. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>